Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman Podcast. Stephen, what happened in the Queen's speech, Stephen? Um, I mean, to be honest, not all that much. It was very much a pre-election Queen's speech uh, with one eye. He, he, Cameron knows he needs not necessarily to attract six million Labour voters. They're relying on Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell and the rest of Labour's big beasts to do that. And John McDonnell gave a speech earlier this week, which kind of did some of the heavy lifting on that. And Corbyn is actually putting himself about a bit more on the European stuff. But they did sort of need something which wasn't so egregious that Labour voters could know that they were voting to keep Cameron in a job and not feel yeah. horrified at that prospect. So it was mostly kind of odds and sods it was it was fairly thin uh thin gruel. so i talked to an mp earlier who said on the doorsteps people i'm talking to labor voters and they don't know labor are for staying in the eu yeah and i think that's going to be a big problem okay so let's run through the conspiracy theories right so the conspiracy theory is that john mcdonald is a sort of secret agent for leave embedded in uh the labor party how much credence do you give that that idea that corbyn and john mcdonald are really so anti-europe that they're sort of sabotaging it from within um uh, so i think that jeremy and john know that and actually i think it's so there are basically two types of people in the Labour Party. There are people who, whether they're socialists, social democrats, whatever group, have basically joined the biggest left-wing party, and they don't have that much effect, affection for Labour as an entity. I would say John McDonnell is that in that group. Tony Blair was very much in that group. Roy Jenkins was in that group. Um, yeah, there are lots of politicians which we can put in that group. And then there are people who have a almost ancestral, even if they're not necessarily people who come from Labour families, but they have a, a visceral connection to Labour as an entity. Um, Gordon Brown is in that group. Harold Wilson was in that group. Clement Attlee, who was raised a Conservative, but very much mm. became part of that group. Hugh Gates, Gulnai Bevan. And Jeremy Corbyn is in that latter group. That's an interesting point, because people kind of talk a lot about his... Ref we, we've now had an updated figure on how many times he rebelled, right, which is mm. under 500. It's four... Four something. Eighty six, maybe. Um, but you know, the obvious question then arises about why he wanted to be a Labour MP at all. Why not? He didn't stand as a as an independent. So people then have 
underestimated his attachment to Labour, even if his idea of what Labour should be doing is very different to everyone else's. Yeah, and I think with Jeremy, I think you have to understand his where he's arrived at on the European question very much through that basis. Yeah, this is someone who still is giving speeches about Europe, where he basically goes, we have to back Europe, lists a lot of problems and goes, but we have to back Europe. Because yeah, that's he, kind of what Theresa May has yeah. kind of done as well. Like, it's a... It's a it's a but, non-partisan. Well, Theresa May is balancing party opinion in the in the other direction. Mm. Theresa May is a pro-European who'd quite like to be elected leader by a anti-European uh, party. I'm sure. So I think Jeremy has one arrived at the position he knows he has to in order to keep the party on the road. Uh, Labour can be split over. Yeah, like Europe is just a much more fundamental issue to the modern Labour Party than any of the other stuff. And obviously, on the economic stuff, there is a quite. And as we've consensus. said before, it's one in which he doesn't have the membership on his side. Yeah. But he has also, um, and this second part is just a judgment call on my part. It could be completely. I think he has also gone on a bit of a journey in that he is enjoying being feted, actually, by the members of uh, Labour's sister parties in the Party of European Socialists. They really like him. You know, even people like, you know, Renzi and Valls and Macron, who are effectively, you know, Blairites, um, like him. Why? Because he's a person from the historical far left who is changing the main social democratic party from inside he's not trying to kill it from outside like Syriza, Podemos, Melanchthon all of these others and when he talks about reforming Europe and changing Europe they want to change Europe too because the left is out of power in most of of, of, of the European Union and so they can all kind of get together on that and Jeremy is enjoying finding people who want to talk about the future of the left and talk about ideas which is obviously his his thing and so i think he is becoming more enthusiastic about europe john mcdonnell is in that part of the labor party which as i've said is kind of cross-dimensional which views labor as more of a means to an end but he also kind of knows i think and you've got to put your shoulder to the wheel and fight for and i mean because his speech was very interesting one because of this clever tactic they've got going now where they are trying to a remind labor voters that labor is for staying in the eu but basically they're talking a lot about a tory brexit you know if you vote for brexit you're not voting for like you know get rid of ttip Mm. you're voting for ttip max because you're voting for whatever terrible deal then cameron or his successor which you're you're voting for a negotiation a divorce negotiation from a very right-wing government the interesting thing is he is not the speech is not an argument against the idea that Brexit with a left wing government would necessarily be the worst thing in the world. Um but again it, it's it's where they need to be to keep the party together. It's one of my growing listicle of uh times when Corbyn was more savvy than either a lot of his supporters who I think like to believe he doesn't do politics. He's a sort and, of naive idealist. Yeah, and yeah. his opponents who like to believe that he's like some kind of like guy who's wandered in from the last shower. Um when you say shower, do you mean... That's like a phrase, isn't it? Came down with the last shower? It, it, that is a phrase. Okay. I, now I'm... You know, now I'm imagining Jeremy Corbyn as like Donald Duck and a little... Yeah, no, I'm going to yeah. evacuate the conversation straight away. Yeah. Um, of the other stuff that was in the Queen's speech, then prison reform is the sort of... Which I think is an interesting one because uh, Michael Gove has kind of carried over his zeal for life chances into this brief, in prisons brief. It's a very liberal friendly kind of idea that you might reform the prison system the trouble with it is that i just feel like much as with the academization of schools that some places it will work and some places it kind of won't yeah and and also i mean the thing with academization is then the argument for it which i think does work in a lot of places is you've got a fairly clear 
power base as it were which is parents who want to see good outcomes for their for their children and they sort of exert the push factor what is the push factor for these reform prisons these like prisoners where the governor has a lot of power to be better at turning out people who because you know the problem is the absence isn't it yeah turn out people who won't offend again yeah you don't no one really kind of gets excited about that what what's what is the push factor i mean in weirdly i'm you know i'm not necessarily saying thing i don't think this would be a good idea for other reasons but if like um they were just turning over prisons to i don't know like you know pimlico plumbers or whatever yeah and saying but you know we'll give you an ni holiday on however many qualified plumbers you turn out that at least as a policy lever would make sense because pimlico plumbers obviously has an incentive to turn prisoners prisoners into into plumbers. plumbers I don't really get what the policy lever that a reform prison is meant to be pulling on. There's not, there aren't, I mean, there are concerned parents of prisoners, but there aren't concerned parents of prisoners moving in and out of catchment areas to go to the right prison. <laughs> like, 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 it just, yeah. it just doesn't, doesn't quite make sense. The other interesting thing is that Joe Johnson and the Queen's Speech has opened the door for more marketization, genuine marketization in higher education. Uh, because now, obviously, we have a cap and everyone goes at or to the cap because not hitting this the cap yeah on fees is a sign of well, not you, being very good why would you say well, we only charge low fees because actually we're quite crap yeah <laughs> yeah whereas joe johnson wants to have a situation where if you have a good teaching record you can charge above the nine nine k cap um which is certainly something to watch for labor is going to launch a campaign against it the name of which a labor source did tell me but uh i am gradually losing my marbles so much for all those tuition fees uh so i can't remember what it's called and the thing is so i am uh, a bit of a zealot for the tuition fee Deep model fees no it's called fee something speech. like they're, they're making a point about it being a tax right so uh okay so I, I am broadly supportive of the idea that you should have a graduate contribution uh it's, let's face it, the only way of taxing the middle classes that we've managed to get the Tories to agree with for 50 years. So, uh, you know, the, the problem with 9K, you're already effectively at a mo- uh, tax increase on basic rate of about 5p, right? Mm. Which basically means when people talk about the generation without fees, the last generation without fees in 1997 actually paid more net in tax uh, than a graduate on 21K do- does now because of the way the thresholds have moved. Uh, but the second you're raising above that, you are looking at a fairly hefty marginal rate for people entering the job market at 21k, which is when you're eligible. And at that point, you probably do need to have a conversation about what is considered fair, because we quite rightly would go, no, you can't put 9p on basic rate. That is going to have a chilling effect on on employment. So that is worth watching. Uh, I think we are probably reaching the upper limit of where a graduate contribution is socially just and where it starts to have perverse impacts on uh, opportunity in the job market. And was was there a a rabbit? Not really. Um, I mean, it was a a fairly unspectacular in every sense of the word Queen speech. I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, the deficit, I think, was mentioned once. Um, Do you know what I was thinking... Well, about that old deficit, I haven't heard a lot about that these uh, last few months. Um, they're gonna... It's kind of amazing, isn't it? I mean, I it, I know we moan a bit about Labour, but the the way that I think it's really interesting is name a Jeremy Corbyn signature policy. You can't. 
And other thing that people who were really behind Corbyn wanted is was a good alternative to anti-austerity. You know, a lot of the energy that the Corbyn came came out of things like the People's Assembly, you know, Occupy, the anti-austerity marches. And actually, it, he hasn't really talked a lot about opposing austerity and about cuts to services. I just think that's I think that's kind of slightly fascinating. And what it says to me is that Labour at the moment is 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 struggling because it's very reactive, right? Mm. It, it is. It's just it's defending itself from blows from outside. It's not. At the moment, and maybe this is a, a thing about, you know, having lost so many people from Brewers Green, as was, and, and new people sort of finding their feet. But actually, in terms of making their own stories, the, the things, the causes that they were kind of elected to to take on, the Corbyn team haven't really started coming up with a sort of distinctive Corbynite flavour of Labour yet. Um, no, I think partly because the, the really big loss... Uh, under when Ed left was policy wonks, uh, people like Torsten Erickson Bell, now at the Resolution Foundation, who had were massive brains. Uh, from a tactical side, you'll notice if you listen to music radio, you're starting to hear Corbyn's voice a lot more. They're getting much better at that kind of thing. Yeah, his speech today, a bit on the long side, but very funny. Uh, and they're starting to get much tighter on that kind of thing. But they still, there's no nice way to say this, don't have a big policy brain worth the name. Uh, they have two people who are now leaving who uh, were effectively fresh out of university. There's a policy team at Labour Party's headquarters, which um, uh, I bumped into one of them on the way home train. I just said, so what is it you actually do at the moment? And they kind of shrugged and looked a bit sheepish and said, to be honest, not <laughs> not all that much. Yeah. Um, and that is a, that is a big problem. Um, and the difficulty is devolution makes that worse. Because if you know a lot about transport policy, would you rather work for Jeremy Corbyn, where you are going to have to wait four years to get your stuff implemented, uh, if if you can win? And obviously, you know, lots yeah. of things could happen. Or do you want to go and work for Sadiq tomorrow? Sadiq and tomorrow. Do something really interesting. Marvin Rees tomorrow. Yeah. Next year, whoever the uh, mayor Manchester. of Manchester is, which we should probably talk a bit about the mayor of Manchester. Go on, let's talk a bit about the mayor of Manchester. I've been out all day, as you, as podcast readers will be able to tell from me going like, so Stephen, if you were a person who hadn't heard anything about, is it Andy Burnham? Is it going to be Andy Burnham? Though? I mean, he's got a good chance, right? So I've uh, phoned around various uh, Labour activists in the region and if I could once again do my general call please do invite me to speak to your local party because it's how I find out what you all think uh, and also I'm a great after dinner speaker not really <laughs> yeah well I'm okay uh, but um, but basically there were two very interesting reactions there were some people mainly from the city of Manchester itself who were like a scouser fudge off and then there were people from the rest of the conurbation. I hate the apples, like clean rating. It's <laughs> uh, ruining our, it's ruining our credibility. And then uh, the uh, people from the rest of the conurbation, because there are nine other local authorities uh, of which I can mostly name eight, so I'm not going to try. No, go on, do they? All right. So uh, the nine others are. Yeah. Okay. Wigan. Yeah. Bolton. Yeah. Berry. Yeah. Stockport. Yeah. I don't want to say yeah. I don't. Need Trafford, to be... Thameside. Um, I've done Wigan already. Well, if you're an angry Mancunian in one of um, the two that Stephen... Rochdale no. and Oldham. Oh. Roch- boom. And the thing is, is the people from sort of the greater bit of the Greater Manchester Combined Authority are, for understandable reasons, fairly keen on the idea that it should be someone who will be a mayor for all of Greater Manchester. Um, Andy is born in Greater Manchester, is a Greater Manchester MP. Of course, there's the slight awkwardness that he has did spend last summer running... As you know, but Labour leader, we, we the, haven't the Scouser, about that. Scouser, and 
Yeah. What about, do you know who's a big Labour supporter? Noel Gallagher. Is he still? Well, he was. He he did talk about, he, he did an interview uh, with Russell Brand for a, a special that we ran. And he said, he, he reflected on the famous photo opportunity saying that was extremely cheesy. Uh, but I think he, I think he had harsh words for Ed Miliband. I'm sure we use yeah. that euphemism, harsh words. But I think, yeah, could happen. Yeah, I might put. Do you know what? In, given the state of politics these days, I might just put a tenner on that. Yeah, I think Andy Burnham is. Happen. Yeah, he's got a goodish chance. I think if I, the bookies seem to have made him immediate favourite. My tip is, if you're looking to make money on it, I imagine Richard Lloyd, who was a Manchester MP, is currently uh, their interim mayor. Um, is probably he's got most of the institutional support in the northwest from its power brokers. Was Ivan Lewis former cabinet well former minister was yeah. he going for Birmingham? No, he's going for Manchester as well. Um so Ivan is is it of interestingly placed. I mean, one there's the chance that Berry which is one of the northwest's genuine marginals will get more Tory and boundary changes. Two to be frank his career is not going places under Jeremy Corbyn. Something one might also say about one A. Burnham. I mean, I know he's in the shadow cabinet, but again, as you say, it's that long four years until an election, which Labour is not yet hopeful of winning. Uh, Yeah. I mean, the thing is with with Ivan is that he is apparently raising a lot of money. The thing I noticed when I was making these calls is every single person I spoke to said, I've seen a message from Ivan on Facebook. And maybe he's just really likes he spends a lot of time on Facebook. Yeah. Maybe he's doing that all himself. And he basically has a fairly similar agenda to Richard Lees, who is the mayor of Manchester City. Can I, by the way, just complain about having to write up a story in which everyone's surname ends in L and everyone is in some way running a place which has the word Manchester in the title? It's as bad as the tooting by election where all of the candidates are called Khan or are doctors. Um anyway. Um He's basically running on the you know, very centralised administration around Manchester. very, And so he will, I think, do very well in his own seat of Bury and among uh, people from the real city of Manchester. Haven't, well. The SNP have got two MPs with the same name, though, haven't they? They do. I think or what they do on America's Next Top Model is they make one of them change their name. One of them is... So McKay, who I won't spoil, but she did very well on a series of uh, America's Next Model. Actually, was Britney, and there were two. In fact, there were three Britneys, and the one got culled before the makeover round. So, just a tip there for any of the people running for the Manchester mayoral race: why not? Why not change your name? Okay, uh, I think that's probably all of politics pretty summarily dealt with. Thank you for uh, filling in for the fact that I knew nothing about any of that stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and that's all for now. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So you had one of the big set-piece parliamentary occasions yesterday, the Queen's speech following uh, Her Majesty's address in the House of Lords. And it was most notable for a remarkably long response by Jeremy Corbyn, uh, which at 41 minutes, including no interventions, was 60 seconds longer than the whole of Sergeant Pepper's. And Corbyn actually started off rather well. He um, had lots of good jokes uh, the Tories were amused. He had genuinely won the House over and it, it looked as if it could be 
uh, the moment that um, he really rose in stature as a, as a, as a parliamentary performer. Um, unfortunately, when he then moved on to the formal policies of the speech, um, he did go on rather too long. Uh, the Tories completely lost the tension when they weren't mocking him. Um, Labour frontbenchers uh, looked down at their phones, um, gazing in or gazed into the distance. And um, it ended up being um, sort of uh, mocked, really, by, um, by, by the House. In terms of the political background, what is... What was Cameron's? Because obviously, yeah, it's a speech written in Downing Street. What was what was Cameron hoping to get out of this Queen's speech? So I think he had um, two main aims. The first was to show that the business of government is continuing as normal. Of course, it isn't. Um, the government is in overdrive, trying to ensure that the UK votes to remain when the referendum happens on the twenty third of June. The cabinet is is split. But he wants to <clears throat> give the impression, at least, that his mind is still on other matters. And then he wanted a, a ready-made agenda to pick up after the referendum, assuming it's, assuming it's a vote to remain. And that increasingly is focused on what he hopes will be his legacy, which is social reform. So you had the bill on prisons and courts, um, a bill to speed up the adoption process, bills to improve access to higher education for disadvantaged groups. And Cameron's strategist emphasised that this isn't a calculated bid to colonise the centre ground. It's a reflection of what he really cares about. And they view it as picking up a project that was interrupted by the financial crash and its aftermath. Was there anything in the... Yes, yeah, obviously, the other eye is it being as non-contentious as possible in order to avoid sinking the referendum. What are the potential flashpoints in the speech for the government, do you think? The extremism strategy will um, be criticised by some as, as illiberal and as um, potentially threatening um, freedom of, of expression. Cameron, actually, in his response to Jeremy Corbyn, made quite a robust defence of that, saying that it was... It was uh, true liberalism to stand up to um, non-violent forms of extremism rather than merely merely violent forms. That was the way to to defend um, Western values. The prison reforms are, are unpredictable, and they obviously some Tory backbenchers uh, view them as as excessively soft, but also giving uh, prisons new new freedoms. It enhances the the risks of, of of something going wrong and the government having to to in, intervene later, and um, I mean, more broadly, the risk is with a majority of only of only twelve, with continuing austerity and with the resentment that will linger after the referendum. Uh, no item of, of of Cameron's program is 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 secure is as secure as as it would be if he was governing with a large major, much larger majority in in happier circumstances. On the subject of uh, extremism, that has been one area where so far uh, Labour has had a fairly authoritarian line, even under Corbyn. Uh, his current shadow Home Secretary might be going off to become uh, Mayor of uh, Greater Manchester. What uh, do people in the PLP make of that? I think it's a reflection of the stature these roles are required. Obviously, the new Mayor of Greater Manchester will have powers not just over transport and skills and policing, but also over the health service. Uh, so in some ways, far more powers than than the mayor of London currently has. So it's 
Burnham's decision is clearly partly a reflection of the fact he doesn't regard Jeremy Corbyn as electable. Uh, before Corbyn's election, private remarks of his were leaked, uh, revealing as much. He clearly doesn't think he'll be back in the cabinet in, a, in the Labour government anytime soon. And of course, should Burnham win this election, he will resign from the shadow cabinet. And that would free Jeremy Corbyn to move a woman into one of the great offices of state, um, one of the omissions that was criticised in his first reshuffle. And that in turn could create space to promote a Corbyn supporter to the shadow cabinet, perhaps someone like Clive Lewis or Cat Smith or Richard Bergen. Well, we'll watch that space and we'll be back next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now we're joined by John Ellidge of City Metric. Uh, to talk about, well, this is your other hat. It's not really a hat. It's a crown, uh, which is Monarchy Week, which is on this week on the New Statesman website, which has been uh, edited and overseen by John. Mm. But Love a queen, me. let's talk about the fact that I think all of us are verging on the Republican, but don't say much about it in public, right? It's not a big cause that you get behind. I mean, why is that, John? Yeah, in I mean, it's, too, it's two things for me. Firstly, it's. I think, you know, all else being equal, I would much rather have an elected head of state, but there are bigger problems to solve. And what we've got at the moment seems basically to work. The other reason that I quite like the monarchy, not the monarch we've got at the moment, the royal family, but the monarchy as an institution is the same way I quite like the papacy or Doctor Who, which is this kind of long list of of weird facts and sort of interesting screw ups over, over many years of history. It's just the kind of extent and, and silliness of it. Who's your favourite, Edward? Uh, Edward the Third, obviously. The Third Edward, who's changed his appearance following an adventure with a poker. Um, that was, no, that was, that was Edward, Edward the Second. Yes, but Edward the Second regenerated after the poker. Oh, oh yeah. So, oh, you were being Terence Dick. Yeah, you were being the introduction to a Terence. This is really very obscure already. Isn't um, it? We should. Um, the reason, no, the reason I think it's really interesting is that republicanism is a is an incredibly unfashionable cause, right? Even on the left, it's just not something that gets a big head of steam oh, behind I it. I think John's point about how it's just not a priority is part of the problem. So, I think the reason why I mostly kind of keep quiet about it is one, I don't care all that much. Yeah, it's like if I was playing a video game and I ha- and you know you were Britain and there was like a thing you could click to be a republic, I would click that button. But Mostly, just like the kind of people who spend their like who actually work for oh god, I hope not who works for a republic is listening is just just like they seem so you know so cheerless, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, you know everyone's having a tombola for the for whatever royal baby it is now, oh, you know that tombola ought to be democratically elected, and just like we're enjoying our tombola it's like, i mean so today i I kind of you know you, she's you know she's not a great orator and you, which kind of like highlights this is she, the queen yes yeah, you would not have won any elections but you kind of don't want to be in the company of those kind of like 
waspish people who's like think the height of humor is to be like lolol she's old and inherited this okay i think it's but this is this is not specific to republicans this is just single issue campaigners i was at a thing the other day and i was having a conversation with someone about how he's designing an app to do direct democracy Um, but someone came up and asked us what we're talking about they said oh we're just we're just retooling democracy over here and this guy turned to me and went ah then you'll be in favor of brexit won't you (laughs) And it was just blindingly obvious that, you know, whatever conversation you're having, he's going to find a way of getting it in there. And the problem is not that there is anything wrong with being a Republican. The problem is public Republicans are bores. I also think, I don't know, I think that actually for the left, I think the Republicanism is to us what bashing the BBC is to the Tories. I think it's something that people who are immersed in left-wing politics basically kind of think, oh, you know the monarchy's suboptimal in the same way a lot of Tories think the BBC is this massive market intervention but if you say that to most people who are not politically obsessed they go why don't you like the BBC why also, don't you like Iga Peel? why no don't way you like a match day one of the Stephen Bush administration would be to abolish the monarchy right like I would put it way down my list of priorities actually I would I would higher up I would put reforming the House of Lords because there was a great line from Robin Cook once who said that the only two countries in the world now, democratic countries in the world now, that still have hereditary chieftains in their parliament are Britain and Lesotho. And, you know, I think and also now the Eurovision uh, Song Contest. Hereditary chieftains. Well, I mean, how do you become a Eurovision judge? Does anyone know? Seriously, if you know, please do tweet to me about it. Like, I would love to be one. Um, to wrench this back to the original premise of the question, though, uh, do you think that the affection for the monarchy will outlast the present queen? I think it's probably going to depend on how quickly Charles dies. I think, uh, I mean, I don't, everyone's giving me looks now. Like, I've just, like, we weren't all thinking that. Like, the whole country isn't thinking that. But, okay, I think Charles is probably going to be silly about the boundaries of his role and probably look, either actually speak out or just look like he really wants to. But I think there is a lot of affection for Prince William. And, you know, he, Charles is, what, he's 68 now? So he's probably not going to get a very long go. I don't know. Yeah, to be I honest, just... I wouldn't be surprised if I die of old age before Queen Elizabeth does. But also, if you look at the historical precedent, it has to be Queen Victoria and Edward Seventh, right? I mean, mm. he admittedly, he did only get 10 years because life expectancy was much shorter then. But he basically had barely done any... I mean, he did really did a very small amount of waving. He spent most of his time in a brothel in Paris... You know, and, and and that didn't sink the monarchy. I mean, no one was doing anything at that point. Like, this is the whole world is kind of stumbling towards World War One unknowingly. It's like, I mean, it's not a great precedent. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, the monarchy will... I think, yeah, I think if, 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 if Republic did want to actually start chipping away at it, they would make transitional demands like, you know, why does the head of state give this speech that we know they don't agree with? Shouldn't the prime minister have to present to the House of Commons, etc., etc., to kind of gently wheedle the monarchy out of public life? But, but it's amazing how many European countries still have monarchs, even ones that have invited back their monarchs, right? Yeah. We, we were talking about this on Twitter earlier, actually. One of the... One of the coolest monarchs I think there has ever been would be a Juan Carlos of Spain, who who General Franco put in power, basically bequeathed power to on his death. Um, and Juan Carlos pretty much instantly said, right, let's have a constitutional democracy, um, which is, you know, that's a pretty good thing to do if you're yeah. a monarch. The other cool thing about him is because he was the first monarch in Spain called Juan Carlos, he is Juan Carlos I. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that is. I that contribute is... a lot to these podcasts, don't I? But also, like, but actually... in Greece, by the way, their monarchs have letters rather than so. So there's a there's a claimant to the Greek phone, uh, Greek throne at the moment called Constantine B. That makes it sound like a virus. I thought it made or, it sound like um, or a, a DJ a character or... in Arrested Development. Yeah, um, but the other thing that's really weird is because there's some weird demographic hump or something, you end up with a lot of royal families in Europe that have just got. 30 something heirs who were quite photogenic and are having babies but in conclusion <laughs> queen elizabeth longed to reign over us i think obviously the tube line that would be most like the queen would be the elizabeth line which is open coming to a london near you in 2019 thank you john And now welcome to a section called You Asked Us. What did people or persons unknown ask us this week, Stephen? So we've actually got a really interesting question uh, from Rob Hunter via the Twitters. Um, Michael Lyons, who is a former chair of the BBC Trust, mm-hmm. uh, says the BBC is attacking Corbyn uh, too much. Corbyn supporters are uh, upset that uh, Laura Kunzberg yeah. is uh, is biased against them but in the independent andrew grice says labor is unhelpful slash uncooperative with the press so their question is his question is how real is the conspiracy slash anti-corbyn bias or are corbyn's people just really bad at doing media or both or neither i would say it's both because i think what happens is the bbc particularly in the time in the run-up to the white paper and charter renewal has been very worried about making a stink you know it, it went through a really torrid time over things like savile uh, and um, you know various other kind of things, the, the Newsnight stuff that happened about, about child abuse investigations. It's really hard for the BBC to break stories, and and also because there is this sort of hostility to the idea of them breaking stories from the papers, who kind of feel that that's you know that's taking away their bread and butter. Really, I think one of the the problems is the BBC is biased against Corbyn because it follows up the papers, it does paper reviews, you know, the table open will have a bit where they round up the slots. It will draw its commentators from, you know, the papers. Um, and, and, and the establishment is, is kind of, there's just a lot more anti-Corbyn voices to be had there. So a lot of mainstream Labour and left-wing op-ed columnists, for example, just aren't feeling the Corbyn burn at all. And and because it's, you know, and you might say, well, it's because it's a radical grassroots movement, but that means that there aren't nominated spokesmen. And the people who, who, who do speak very eloquently don't do very much. So John Landsman, for example, who's one of the founders of Momentum, doesn't do very much. Mm. So, and it's something that we've experienced as well. There are not a lot of pro-Corbyn pundits out there which is a problem, and also following the papers, and the papers are overwhelming, particularly since the demise of The Independent. You've really only got one left-wing paper in The Guardian, you've got one centred paper in The Times, and then you've got The Sun, The Telegraph, and The Mail, which mm. have all got big readerships and are all, are all right-wing. Yeah, I also think, um, to say something slightly ill-advised, seeing as I'm sharing a podcast chamber with my boss, when you are covering a political story, uh, political journalists are weird in that you're colleagues are mostly not your colleagues in the institution you work for they're people who work for your competitors so when you're talking about a speech afterwards uh there's safety in numbers so uh, my good friend connor pope who works at labor list and i will often sit together at labor events and we will discuss what the news line is because the advantage is if connor and i both miss a news line well there's not going to be an inquest because our our, our our main rival for Labour-facing stories has also missed it. So Connor and I sit there and go, oh, what's the news angle? 
the trick with man and obviously that doesn't really matter because we're a very small lefty bubble and uh yeah and, and we you know are, are obviously you know fairly anti the conservative party but the trick to getting your message out is to effectively make sure that the herd and again there is this safety in numbers has decided that the story is your story because team corbyn is not that great at cultivating uh that kind of uh, herd following they end up in this situation in which people decide that the story isn't their rubbish and that way they can know they'll all go back to the mothership and go the story is he's rubbish and the next day no one will go well you said the story wasn't he had this interesting point so and so said the story and it was this and they don't have any personal loyalty in the lobby to call on really i mean that their you know their press operation are very nice but uh Seamus Milne who's director of comms and strategy right yeah. i can't remember exactly what his job title is former guardian columnist so you know he's got good contacts at the guardian but actually the new guardian political editors have taken over since he was he was appointed and uh, you know it, that can actually coming from a newspaper can be a kind of problem when you're trying to deal with other newspapers that aren't you know because you might have made sort of enemies on your way up and i'm not saying that's that's purely uh, a problem for Seamus Mill. It was the same problem for Tom Baldwin as well. Yeah. He'd come for the Times and had been a bit feisty in his previous career. Um, so, you know, actually being somebody who comes just from a comms background rather than from a newspaper columnist background can be kind of an advantage there, I think. Yeah, I also think um, it's not a style of journalism I do particularly well at myself, but there is a type of journalist who their approach is I'll be nice about you in exchange for stories. And Corbyn's people have not been very good at cultivating and feeding those people. And I think a lot of people who were very sympathetic to Ed Miliband, who possibly would be more sympathetic to Corbyn if they were being having their stomachs tickled a bit more, have become viscerally anti him. Now, you can argue that that is not a fair reaction. Unfortunately, as uh, one of Ed's uh, press officers once said to me they said well you know the press is like you there's no such thing as good press or bad press there's in the same way there's no such thing as good weather or bad weather there's just the right clothing and the sad thing is for the left is then we do have this problem and it is always minus 20 and pouring buckets of rain down did you see that way i uh, yeah i thought it was a good yeah, metaphor good, um, it was yeah. almost raft like in its yeah. execution um yeah so i, th- I think that I, I think if i were you know it would be tough if i say would you rather run david cameron's press operation or jeremy corbyn's it'd be a lot easier in some respects to run david cameron well for two reasons first is you've got power you've got things to give away you've got exclusives you've got policies yeah. you've got prestige you've got all the trappings of power that come with it that gives you more leverage over people and second thing is you've just got you know, I think the press was the Tory press was very, very pro Cameron in a way that actually during the election has now made them feel slightly freaked out by how hostile they're finding it during the EU referendum. Right? I think you wrote this column yeah. a, a while ago saying that they're finally kind of playing an away game and they're realizing quite what a what a you know what a headwind that is to yeah. run into. That said, I think there are things that Corbyn could do better. Uh, the leader in the magazine this week says that you know he is good on TV. He was good on Peston. He comes across as relaxed. He knows what he thinks and he says it. He, Ed Miliband often looked quite tortured at the compromises that he was having to make. Uh, you know, Corbyn just doesn't doesn't he just looks serene and un, untroubled you know he knows what he thinks he loves talking about stuff you know he's, he's somebody, got a very warm voice which he's helps got a warm on voice. he's got a really quite a relaxing persona john mcdonnell as well has uh, gone gone quite a transformation into this kind of we, we i was thinking of him as like a sort of boring bank manager but actually you know what if you're shadow chancellor that some, someone who kind of looks quite dull and but like they know what they're doing is not a bad look for you so i think that they could definitely 
you know, if, if they're worried about the fact that they just feel like they just don't get a good hearing from the right-wing press, if the right-wing press is just there to slate them and slag them off, they could bypass that to some extent, not just with Facebook to try and reach younger people, but also by the traditional broadcasters, get them on the sofa. This is what I want. I want Jeremy Corbyn, if he wants to make people care about climate change, which I know is an issue that he cares about, he can do that much more easily if he gets on the one show and talks about courgettes talks about how much more it's been raining now, segues that into uh, a discussion about how weather's becoming more wild because we're polluting the atmosphere with carbon, right? Yeah. You, you can do that. It's not... A, I think people think it's a, t- a terrific sellout to do anything fun or lightweight or lighthearted. But if you can give people an insight into you and your values and where you're kind of coming from and make and seem relatable, that then preps them to listen to what you have to say about issues. Yeah, and the SNP are past masters of this, as indeed... Uh, was Blair. I mean, Cameron's quite good at it, but it's much easier if you're on the right. Uh, you're doing a lot of TV and then doing one interview very carefully chosen with a, a client journalist, journalist effect, effectively. And, you know, that, that would, I think, probably be the best way forward. Right. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with a Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>